May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. What helps a Christian community thrive? Christians, leaders in particular, tend to assume we know how to answer this question. And if you know how to answer it particularly well, you can sell a lot of books. And then once you've settled on your favorite answer, if we think about what scripture might have to say on the topic, it's only then that we double back to confirm the solution that we've already come to. So what happens is that over time, instead of listening to scripture and learning from it, we just ignore it, using it when necessary as a tool to back up our own favored strategy. But of course, as Christians, we believe that scripture has real power, power to transform us. And we also believe that if we submit ourselves to the word, we can be changed for the better. That's at least one reason why we keep coming back to read scripture over and over and over again. Because there is power and possibility in the text. Power and possibility that can shape us in a way that our own resources or tools just can't manage. God has given us in scripture deep and abiding directions. And helping us to thrive is something that can be found there. So it's this question about thriving Christian community that brings us from Luke into Acts this morning as our summer preaching series continues. Acts is a history book. Luke, who wrote both books, is writing here a narrative description of the early history and the formative years of the church. And it's a great book for churches to read together because it describes the formation of these first Christian communities. And that means it shows us what God intends to do to shape the church. It's not a to-do list, but a vision of what a thriving church looked like as it moved out into the world in the very beginning. So when we read this morning about the believers gathering together in the wake of Pentecost and the pattern of life that emerged among them, we should not be skeptical about the practicality of what the early church was up to or worried about how we can turn their system into something that we could apply, but instead we should just try to receive the wisdom that we find here because Acts just gives directions that we can follow if we're willing. Acts 2.42 through the end of the chapter in verse 47 is a roadmap for our life as the people of God who have been sent on mission into the world. The arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, of course, altered the nature of the apostles' fellowship after Jesus' departure. And there are these two primary visible consequences of the giving of the Holy Spirit. The first is evangelistic outreach, resulting from the empowered witness of the apostles. This is something you and I recognize all the time, right? The disciples, when Jesus meets them early in the Gospels, are not well-spoken, well-educated, erudite, thoughtful men. They're goofballs. Uh, They're fishermen and tax collectors and people who have been sort of cast aside. But at the giving of the Holy Spirit, they are transformed. And the second thing that happens is that there is the establishment of a new community 
as a result of the evangelistic outreach empowered by the Spirit. Luke's description of the life of the Christian community in Jerusalem, before the members actually even start to call themselves a church, holds up before us four basic markers of unity, four disciplines or practices that mark the boundaries of those who follow the way of Jesus. Doctrine, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. These are the four most basic outward and visible signs of Christian unity, markers of whether a gathering is a church or something else. So first, there's the necessity of unity in doctrine. The simplest way that the early church sorted these questions out was a verbal confession. Something like, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's a pretty simple sentence, but it's packed with lots of theology. And the earliest Christians believed that sentence held lots of weight. The creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed, if you really want to get down to brass tacks, the creeds were in many ways just longer forms of that simple verbal confession. They're working out some of the more complex Trinitarian details of the faith and stating for the record what the beliefs of the church around the world were meant to be. And in an environment like the first century in Israel, where there were plenty of competitors in the marketplace of religious ideas, establishing a kind of doctrinal unity was crucial. So if someone came along claiming to be a Christian, but preaching a gospel that totally diverged from the ones that the apostles had received from Christ, how can you be sure which is the true one and which is the fake? It's a little bit like if you decided to start a new company making some kind of a product, but imagine you're not a very original person. So you just decided to come up with somebody else's idea and sell it yourself. So you went to the store and you bought a bottle of Coca-Cola and you studied the label in depth. And somehow through some back channels, you acquire all the chemical ingredients you need and you get the equipment and you decide you're gonna start bottling your own version of Coke like a kind of bathtub gin, but for soda. (laughs) Now, it would be unquestionably a worse product. (laughs) But, no matter how hard you worked at it, it, if you managed to get it into a store with a red label and a bottle cap, and you decided to call it something like almost as good as real (laughs) Coca-Cola, you would probably get a couple people to buy it, just to see what it's like. Some people, because of the way that people are, might even insist that it was just as good as the real thing, even though it definitely tastes like you made it in your bathtub. (laughs) This is the challenge the early church faced in a time and place where religious belief was very common, and belief in a plethora of gods was hardly ever seen as an issue. To believe in a god was not really that much of a surprise but there had to be clarity about which God you believed in and what that God was about. And so understanding true doctrine was necessary. And it was just as important as making sure that your Coca-Cola is actually the real thing. And that doctrine shaped the fellowship that members shared with one another. It's often been said that there are no Lone Ranger Christians, which for some people is more comforting than for others. 
But from the beginning of the church, there's always been this kind of social element involved. That's why we're all here together this morning and not worshiping on our own in our own individual homes on our own schedule. Starting with the disciples and their relationships with one another, and then extending to the growing communities of believers in the first century cities, going on to the monastic communities that met all over medieval Europe, and now to the small groups that gather regularly in our own day, being a Christian requires being a Christian alongside other people. Now, wanting to be together is a very human characteristic, and Christians have always known kind of innately that to support one another, we need to be close to one another. We need to be able to share our joys and our sorrows. And we have to be able to share fellowship with one another intentionally. Now, like a muscle, our capacity for that kind of fellowship can atrophy if we don't exercise it regularly. That's particularly true as technology makes it easier and easier for us to feel like we're very close together without ever actually having to be in the same place. The church has to commit over and over throughout the centuries to practicing the very most basic levels and forms of fellowship. And I think for us, those fall into two really broad categories. So on one hand, you have celebration, and on the other hand, you have struggle. Communal celebration and struggle might seem strange to pair together, but they're both products of a commitment to being with one another in fellowship. It's hard to celebrate with somebody who you do not know. Have you ever gotten really good news in a public place and found yourself wanting to celebrate with somebody but not knowing anyone in the Walmart parking lot who will, who will appropriately appreciate your great news? Or alternatively, it's hard to share your sorrow with someone you don't know. Think of all the times that you have maybe seen somebody in public who is having a really bad moment and you wish that there was something that you could do, but you just could not. Knowing one another well enough to share these two things does not happen instantly. The early Christians spent lots and lots of time together growing their bonds, building a community that would cross all the boundaries that were externally ex imposed on them. They needed one another maybe in a different way than we do. Given the resources available to us, the possibility of being a Lone Ranger Christian might seem easier to achieve now than ever before. But sharing a social relationship with other believers builds up the body of Christ because it's in the sharing of everyday life that we can help one another see how God is working among us and the ways that we are actually growing in Christ-likeness. If we remain separated from community, if we remain apart, it's like living in a home with no mirrors and no way to ever see ourselves. We need to be a part of a fellowship, not just to share those joys and sorrows, but so that others can help us see ourselves and the Christ-likeness that is growing in us as we walk the path of discipleship together. So the fellowship that believers share with one another then necessarily creates the condition for sharing all kinds of things. As Luke notes, they held all things in common with one another so that no one among them had any unmet needs. At some point, that particular aspect of Christian fellowship kind of faded away 
You have your stuff, I have my stuff. You're welcome to borrow my stuff, but I'm gonna need my stuff back at some point. But it's the breaking of bread together that remains. Breaking bread in this context is not just referring to the Eucharist, although that's definitely part of it. But what believers did was they extended their fellowship outside of the regular worship gathering. They were together so often that it just made sense to share meals. This week, I had a phone call from a friend of mine who's a pastor in Florida, uh, lamenting some of the difficulty that she and her church are having with the homeowner who owns the building next to their church across the alley. It seems that this gentleman is taking issue with some of the people that he sees coming to meals that the church is hosting regularly in their parish hall. He described them to my friend as undesirables, complaining that some of them appear to be living on the streets. It's very wise of him to notice. They are indeed living on the streets. And that he would prefer not to see them using the door of the church that's closest to his home. Perhaps he suggested they could find another entrance if they would not stop coming completely. Now, all of that is shocking and offensive enough from the perspective of basic basic human decency. But for the church, the sharing of food is part of the fabric of our basic life together. We feed hungry people. And we share food with one another because Christ commanded us to do so. As I told my friend, if sharing a meal with hungry people offends you, what would you say about clothing the naked or caring for the sick or visiting those who are in prison? What would you say about the resurrection? We share food and fellowship together as an extension of the table of Jesus Christ who feeds us on himself. And we do it often despite what others might think of the company that we keep. The table of fellowship and of feeding is a place where we grow, going deeper into relationship with one another and with our common Lord. Finally, the believers persisted in the prayers. That particular description, the prayers, makes it clear that they were engaged in a regular pattern of worship. That starts with their time in the Jewish synagogues together and then over time developed into a distinctly Christian liturgical rhythm. This is the pattern that you'll see if you pray the daily office in your Anglican prayer books. Now, prayer might seem to be the most obvious of the four markers of Christian unity. Of course, Christians pray together. That's no surprise. But I think it's actually the most radical of the four because it's so out of step with the ways that we relate to each other in every other setting. Prayer is distinctive in a way that doctrinal clarity or fellowship or sharing meals with one another just are not. Any of those other three activities could be part of the life of a social club or any other kind of group. But praying together and especially praying for one another is something distinctive. And it remains one of the most powerful things that we can do together. Having a regular pattern of prayer is an anchor in the storms of life. It is a touchstone to come back to again and again and again. 
It structures our spiritual lives in a way that keeps us from straying too far from God. And in a world where the word discipline has an overwhelming negative connotation, it is good to be disciplined by prayer. When I meet with people who claim that they are struggling to hear from God, often the first thing I ask is about their prayer lives. Because prayer is the means by which we are refreshed by the Holy Spirit. And when we feel very far from God, when we feel lost, in prayer we can always come back before the Lord and receive from him the strength that we need to persevere. So if you don't have a regular practice of prayer that you use, I want to commend it to you this morning. I'm not thinking just about Sunday worship, although that is, of course, important. I'm thinking instead about some kind of daily practice that grounds you in Scripture and in truth and returns you to who God made you to be. I would, of course, want to argue that the daily office is practiced by Anglicans. That rhythm of morning and evening prayer that we've used for about 500 years now is a pretty decent place to start. But there are other ways... If you have a hard time praying on your own, find a trusted Christian friend who will pray with you and pray for you and will hold you accountable to what you say you want to do. Don't make an excuse for why you can't or don't pray and then wonder why you feel disconnected from the presence of God. Do whatever you have to in order to make prayer a priority and Jesus will come to you just as he did to those first believers. So these four signs of unity, I want to argue this morning that they are manifestations of the Holy Spirit. They are the second level of witness after Pentecost, confirming the truth of what the apostles confessed and preached. So it is for us, if the believers, if the followers of Jesus are hearing the gospel preached and obeying, the fruit of the Spirit's presence begins to show up in the life of the church. And as people are transformed by the Holy Spirit, they start to show that transformation outwardly by what they believe, by how they share fellowship and eat together, and by the way that they pray for one another and for the world. For the church which has been sent into the world by God, it is impossible to fulfill the mission that we are on if we are not growing deeper in these four ways day by day. And the presence or absence of these markers is an extremely useful way to measure the health of a Christian community. It shows us where we still need to grow, and it helps us to not have to invent our own method of checking the strength of our fellowship. But this is work that will require all of us focused on being sent on a mission, united in clarity of purpose, going deeper in fellowship and sharing a desire to see the power of the Holy Spirit released for the transformation of lives just as it was in Jerusalem all those years ago. And that is truly what helps a Christian community to thrive. It's not our intelligence, it's not our resources, it's not even our prayers. It is the power of God's Holy Spirit set loose in the lives of his followers to go and do the thing that they have been called to do by God's grace to proclaim the gospel of the good news each and every place they go with every single step they take. 
Thanks be to God.